0: read the passage that Ian will come to speak on in just a a few moments. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and we begin reading in verse 19. The Apostle Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead.
1: Amen. I said before, uh, Michael would have been here this evening, and uh, we wish him a speedy recovery, but you've got the older, more recycled version in front of you this evening. But let's just come before the Lord in prayer. It's his word. We're going to need his help to understand it. So let's just ask for that help now. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you and we praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you how it was preached uh, to us this morning. And Lord, we pray that your word would be opened up to us now. That your word would open us up. That we would indeed be equipped and ready. Uh, to do your will lord i pray that the words that of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight and we pray this in your name to your glory Amen. amen i wonder if someone asked you the question what is your goal in life what would you say how would you respond to the question posed what drives you on Many people give an answer that involves the betterment of self, the next paycheck, to give my family a better life, to leave a legacy, which usually means obtaining either a greater number of possessions, a greater name for oneself, or carving a niche in history, becoming famous through displaying an ability in a certain field, perhaps. I just wonder if you recognise the picture of the man, hopefully, you'll see on the screen shortly. I wonder if anyone recognises him. All rugby fans worldwide would have heard of this man. He is indeed, Johnny Wilkinson. Probably England's greatest fly half. He's the man who scored a memorable drop goal to secure arguably the greatest English sporting triumph since 1966 winning the Webb Ellis Trophy for his country back in 2003, creating history as being part of the first, and still to date, I believe, the only Northern Hemisphere team to actually achieve this. And you can see there, that's his picture there, as he's about to secure the winning drop goal against Australia. However, one year after that match, he gave an interview about winning the World Cup This is what he had to say. I had reached the pinnacle of my sport. All the preparation and training led to the glorious feeling of victory. Yet I had a feeling of hollowness, a sense of deflation. What would I do now to match this moment? All that I was living for seemed a disappointment. Wow, somebody who had secured the greatest sporting achievement in his field could say those words 12 months after that had happened. Tonight, we're looking at this wonderful epistle written to the church at Philippi. And Paul and the Philippian Christians were partners in the gospel. If you've got that passage open to you at the moment, it is really helpful to look at this because you will be able to see tonight God being at work in the lives of these Christian folk. Let me just reread to you from Philippians chapter 1 and reading from verses 4 to 8 just to set the scene. This is what Paul says to them. Always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That's what Paul says to the church. He wrote this letter, Paul, in captivity. And although he was in prison, he knew that the gospel had given him something that even in prison chains couldn't be taken off him. And that was the freedom given to him to be in a right relationship with God and to all who believed. About 10 years earlier, Paul had visited Philippi. And Epaphroditus, and we'll talk about him in a little bit more greater detail in a while, brought a gift to Paul, who was in prison. We don't exactly know what that gift was. Many commentators think it was a gift of money. Some people think it may have been a letter. Some people may think it may have been something else. But it was done, whatever this gift was, at considerable cost to himself. When Epaphroditus felt better, Paul sent him back to Philippi with this letter. What was Paul's goal? Well, he wanted the Philippian Christians to be mature in Christ. And he started with three main points. Firstly, he was happy that they were partnering with him in the gospel. Secondly, he wanted them to carry on telling people about Jesus. It wasn't enough that they actually were partners in the gospel. He wanted them to go on telling others so that they too maybe, in God's grace and mercy, also become partners in the gospel. But then thirdly, Paul warned them against false teachers. More of these two in a while as well. And in this letter, Paul helped them to think right. And he gave them examples of people whose lives show that they thought like Jesus. And everyone should look as these people as good examples. When we learn to think right, we tend to live right. Creed does shape conduct. And this first section of God's word we're looking at tonight splits into two parts. We'll see the first part I'll talk about shortly of two godly examples to the church at Philippi that Paul wanted to mention. Godly examples do tend to inspire godly living. And then the second part We'll see about who Paul was, who he now is in Christ, and why it matters. So in the context of this passage, Paul expected to find out soon if he was going to die or be free from prison. Paul was happy to die for Jesus. If he did die, he'd be in glory with him. But he wanted the Philippian Christians to have that joy. Let me just reread from chapter 2. Verses 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering. Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise you also should be glad and rejoice with me. However much he knew that these Christians cared for him. He wanted them to have news quickly. Who would he send? Who would go on his behalf and Paul chose two faithful wholehearted servants of the gospel Timothy and Epaphroditus well why did Paul send these two men there were others that could have been sent yet we see quite clearly that these men were highly valued by Paul why because their lives mirrored what Paul was declaring in chapter 2 They were humble servants of the gospel. They shone like stars in a dark world. And Paul wanted the Philippian church to follow these examples because these men followed Christ without faltering or wavering. Note how Paul was concerned for the church. They were anxious for Paul, and yet his primary concern wasn't about his own welfare, wasn't about how he was in prison, but to see how they were doing spiritually. And that threw up an interesting question for me when I was preparing this. Is do I seek the welfare of others above myself? Do we seek the welfare of others above ourselves? Am I primarily concerned with how others are doing and not caught up with my own daily concerns? That's a great challenge. I found that a great personal challenge to me. And that might be a great personal challenge to you as you hear this tonight. But look at verse 21. Paul says, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Sadly, it seems, according to Paul, Timothy was the only one who really wanted to do things that helped Jesus, not himself. You see, it's easy to commit to pray for someone, to intend to help someone in the name of Christ whenever it's easy to do so whenever it's convenient to fit into my schedule. See, during the summer holidays, as a teacher, as working in education, that seems easier. The rubber hits the road when times are busy. One midweek evening in the middle of a school term, when there are 100 things perhaps to sort out, and the phone rings. Someone from the church fellowship wants to ask me something important or to sort something out. Will I put myself out for the sake of Christ? See, everyone, it seems, except Timothy, was too busy with their own agenda. They perhaps hadn't put Christ at the centre and the gospel first. Do I do this daily? Do you do that daily? Can I lovingly ask you, is Christ at the centre of your agenda? See, it's easy, isn't it, to say no? To something, not because it's asking too much, but because it interferes with your own agenda. See, if you know that is true of you, please let these verses sink into your mind and ask God's help to bring you to greater maturity. Is your agenda God's agenda? See, also, Timothy had shown that he was true and genuine. There were people who would have despised his youth, he was a relatively young man as an elder as a leader for years though he had served with Paul he proved that he could be a faithful colleague with Paul and it was Timothy who took that message of Jesus to Philippi with Paul if you look back in Acts chapter 16 verses 1 to 3 you will see that borne out he wasn't worried about Timothy he knew he could trust him Timothy had traveled with Paul on his journeys they faced many dangers together as they proclaim the great news of the gospel. Paul gave Timothy many difficult jobs, but it's not recorded once in scripture that Timothy disappointed him. It was almost like he was a, a second son to Paul. Many years ago, I had the privilege of being involved in Mission Vacances, which is a French beach mission program Based and where I was based at the time was in Normandy not far from where the D-Day uh, landings took place. And I was there for one week doing gospel work with a team of French-speaking Christians from across Europe. The leader was a wonderful man. If there was a man who reminded me of the Apostle Paul, it was this man. And he had a great habit of getting alongside younger men, nurturing and discipling them to serve Christ wholeheartedly. How did this leader earned such respect or trust. Was his, is it his wonderful speaking skills? Was it his great linguistic ability to converse with French holidaymakers? No, it was simply this. Amongst the team, he was always the first up each day to sweep the kitchen floor and to make breakfast for the hungry prayer team. Every day, day in, day out. He was always on hand, To serve others for the sake of Christ. Nothing seemed ever too much for him to do. Nothing ever was too important for him not to take prayer requests from the fellow team members. In short, he had a servant hearted approach. And it's really important, isn't it, that we should honor those who are shepherding the flock of Christ. How do we honor those who lead? We honour them by submitting to their authority in Christ and seeking to support their needs. Can I ask you, do you pray for your leaders? Do you pray for the needs of our leaders, not only here at Hoylake, but maybe you know other Christians and other churches in the world wider afield? Do we submit to those who lead in Christ willingly? Are we a source of joy or grief to those who shepherd the flock of Christ? I, for one, want to be a source of joy to those who lead. And I'm sure all of us want to follow that as well. But we see here the wonderful example of Timothy. But then the other gentleman, Epaphroditus. Less is said about him in Scripture than Timothy. In fact, outside of this epistle, nothing is said about him. But we do know that he was a leader of one of the churches in Philippi. And what is significant about him is this. He risked his own life for the sake of the gospel. He died to self so that others may be served through the gospel, even to the point of death. Look with me at verse 29. Sorry, verse 27 to 29. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Well, you see, how did he do this? Either on the journey or in Rome, he fell ill to the point of death to carry that gift to Paul. And Paul sent him back with this letter, perhaps earlier than planned. And his warm commendation of Epaphroditus could be to deflect any criticism among the Christians at Philippi that he had not fulfilled his mission. Had Epaphroditus gone AWOL? Where is he? What's going on? Such questions could have been asked. And Paul is keen to send him back to the church with the letter. See, even the name itself, if you know your Greek is great to read. It means lovely, charming, amiable, Epaphroditus. Derived from the Greek goddess Aphrodite, it's possible that his family belonged to a group of people who had been idol worshippers. But there are five things that Paul says to him in verse 25, and I don't want you to miss these. Let me read this to you. I've thought it necessary to send you, a Paphroditus, my brother, Suggesting a close relationship with Paul. Fellow worker, always busy to advance the gospel. Fellow soldier, great man to have around in the battlefield of gospel ministry. Your messenger, an ambassador of Christ, representing the churches at Philippi, someone who could be deeply trusted. And then lastly, minister to my need. Sent to offer practical support. Do you not get the impression here? He's a man of compassion. Worrying for others because they heard that he was ill. He was distressed that they're distress over him. What an example of selflessness. Isn't he someone you want to be in the trenches of gospel ministry with? Isn't he somebody you want to have fighting alongside you? When troubles come. And they do come from time to time. It's clear, isn't it, though, that the church perhaps weren't giving him the due respect that he deserved. And Paul wanted to make it absolutely clear to the church that he'd risked literally everything so that Christ's work could be advanced. And Paul had to remind them in this letter that people like Timothy and Epaphroditus deserved the utmost respect. Why is that? because they made much of the supreme example, Christ. They died to self so that others would come to have eternal life through Christ. It's easy, isn't it, often, to respect the wrong kind of people. People who have money, people who are talented, famous, people who have gifts, political power or power of another kind. We may respect people just because they speak well, you see, Paul wanted the Philippians and ourselves to think right about who to respect. To sum up, really, a HEC, we should look at godly examples, but follow Jesus as the supreme example. They make for great models of leadership because their driving goal, the number one goal, was to point people towards the supreme example, Jesus Christ himself. And as we think about this, Paul wanted his readers to have those good examples. He wanted them to see lives lived wholeheartedly for Jesus Christ. But also in our passage, Paul wanted them to watch out for bad examples. And Paul dealt with one such group in our second section. Just bear with me as we look at this. If you look at the start of chapter 3, verse 2. And these aren't gentle words that Paul uses here, are they? Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Not gentle words here, are they? But they describe the people, the opponents, of Paul's gospel message. You see, Paul had became their leading opponent. And he himself was the subject of their attacks. You see, whenever Paul had travelled on his missionary journeys to certain churches or certain places to establish churches, there were groups of people who would follow him to try and really put paid, they thought, in their own minds to the true gospel message. And here, this group of people, Judaizers, they believed that a number of the ceremonial laws were obligatory to the New Testament church. But of a familiar theme, if we think about this morning's passage that we were being taught, isn't it? And one particular aspect of this was circumcision. Gentile men who wished to become Christians were told they had to submit to this rite of passage. And Paul says no. He said, no, you don't. And he himself, as a result, became the subject of their attacks. And if you read Paul's letter, and not just in Philippians but to the Galatians, it spells out that issue more clearly. And Why does Paul use such strong terms? here because the gospel itself was at stake they were going around philippi stating that the death and resurrection of jesus christ was not sufficient for salvation and in short they're peddling a christ plus message paul and i hope we do as well see the significant harm of such a message he looked at them as enemy agents trying to infiltrate (laughs) the true church and undermine the gospel as a result by adding to it yes you've got the gospel but you need this as well yes you have salvation in christ but you need jewish rules and regulations yes you have freedom through christ but you need to do this as well through the food laws and paul asserted that true circumcision is of the heart not the body and it's summed up in three ways look at verse three We who worship by the Spirit. Who is truly a Christian? Someone in whom the Spirit of God dwells. That's who a Christian is. Someone who has the Spirit of God within them. Glory in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul believed that these Judaizers were making less of Jesus and more religious custom. You see, those who are the true circumcision are those who know Jesus Christ is their only hope and have put all of their hope in him and who put no confidence in the flesh. You see, it wasn't just bad enough that these false teachers were going around peddling the false message. They were trusting their own religious actions to make them right with God. It was almost as if the storm's coming on the beach and they're trying to withhold the tide by making sandcastles. They were so wrong, aren't they? And Paul reminds us here that true Christianity rejects any message through salvation and works. You see, we may not face the Judaizers today, but there are many groups around who peddle a Christ plus message. Seventh-day Adventists who state that Old Testament food laws still apply. Jehovah's Witnesses who claim that a Watchtower magazine is needed as well as God's word. Liberal Anglicans who claim that certain ordinances bring us closer to God. The list could go on. You see, we're to avoid any message that claims salvation through Christ plus anything else. We need to heed what Paul said about such teaching. But you see, as well as that though, Paul wants us to see a great example here. Who he once was and who he now is in Jesus Christ. And there were three things he put his confidence in. And they could be summed up in three ways. If you look at verse 5. His racial heritage. He was born a Jew. A member of the tribe of Benjamin. Someone who'd been circumcised when he was only eight days old. A true Jew. If anyone was truly Jewish, it was Paul. If anyone had the right credentials, it was him. And after that... He also fulfilled that criteria, not only through racial heritage, but through his religion. Paul, or Saul as he was, as a Pharisee, strode to the minutest detail to keep the law. If there were awards for law-keeping, he would be the champion. He'd studied under Gamaliel's tutelage. He was the most respected rabbi of his day. Acts 22 verse 3 points to that. He distinguished himself as being one of the chief persecutors of the church. And the book of Acts records his ascent to the murder of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And at the time of his conversion, what was he doing? He was going around his business seeking to arrest believers, seeking to disrupt the true church in Damascus. But he wasn't just his race, it wasn't just his religion. Thirdly, Paul had placed confidence just as these Judaizers were doing in his own righteousness. The key here word is legalistic. He wasn't claiming to be sinless, but under the strict code of the Pharisees, no one could say to him that he broke the Jewish law. What was, goal, what was Paul's goal in life? It was keeping the rules. All of his time and energy was devoted to that. And if salvation could be done through works, he'd be at the front of the queue. Before he met Jesus, he thought his racial heritage, his religion, and his righteous acts were enough to make him right with God. And people today fall into that same trap, sadly. My prayer is here nobody falls into that trap. If you come from a Christian family, it doesn't make you a Christian. If you strive to keep the Ten Commandments and live by them, it doesn't make you a Christian. If you're a Sunday school teacher, it doesn't make you a Christian. Can I ask you what is the most important question? Do you know Jesus by faith? Have you fully put your trust and only in him? Put your trust in him. You see, Paul thought he knew God, but he didn't at first. It was only when God revealed himself to Paul that he readily knew who God was. You see, when Paul encountered the risen Lord Jesus Christ, his confidence in his race, his religion, his righteous acts, was completely blown apart what he thought he had gained he now considered it lost for the sake of christ look at verse seven paul viewed his former life as the perfect pharisee as something now worthless he had exchanged his former life for something priceless actually if you look at it in verse eight He says these words, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Actually, the translation is better translated dung or muck. That's what Paul actually said about his former life. The great Pharisee, the great law keeper, actually says, all of that is as, righteousness is as filthy rags. But he'd thrown it out to receive something far greater. A relationship with Jesus. So I ask you tonight, has God changed you? How has God changed you? He may have changed you much more slowly than he changed Paul. But like Paul, do you know Jesus now? If so, then true things, two true things Account to you. Firstly, Jesus means everything to you. If Paul lost everything he owned, what would he have left? You would have everything in Christ because Jesus is everything. If you're a Christian here tonight, if you lost everything else materially in this world, you would still have everything in him. Is Philippians 3 8 true for you? But secondly, Jesus is the way God accepts you. This is why Jesus is everything. You see, we can't rely on our own righteousness. We may believe that we're right before God, but God cannot accept our efforts. But you see, we don't have to. God has already accepted Jesus Christ. Now, God doesn't look at Paul's good works. He doesn't look at his racial heritage. He doesn't look at his religion. He looks at Jesus instead. So God is pleased with him because of Jesus. And the same is true of us for everyone who's placed our hope on Jesus Christ. Do you know him by faith? Does God accept you because of what Jesus has done? He does if you have faith in him. God gives us righteousness when we place our trust. The actions of Jesus, not our own. If you remember when I said at the beginning, the question was asked, what's your goal in life? Paul knew his goal, to become more and more like Jesus. He wasn't just satisfied about being saved. I think we tend to think sometimes, once we're Christians, that is it. That's the Christian life. But actually, we're not just, we would be ordinarily thinking, why not be, just be being straight up to heaven? He wants us actually to grow more and more into Jesus Christ, to become more and more like jesus christ is that your goal as a christian to become mature in christ we'll never achieve it fully in this life but our desire is to make much of him if we know him let me just reread to you verse 10 that i may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible i may attain the resurrection from the dead what did Paul want? Wasn't more money. Wasn't greater wealth. Wasn't fame. He wanted more Jesus's power. Think how much power Jesus has. Think how much power it took to rise from the dead. Paul desired to know more of this power himself. Not that he could do astonishing miracles. But he wanted Jesus' power to change him. To make him more like Jesus. Then Paul would know just as we would know Jesus better. Is that what you want most too? And yet secondly, he wanted to know more of Jesus' suffering. Does that surprise you? We tend not to think of suffering as a positive thing. He's not a masochist here, but actually he wants to be closer to Jesus. If you're close to someone you love, you share to, to some degree, don't you, His or her pain. You can't suffer on a cross like Jesus, but you can hate sin. You can feel Jesus's pain at evil. You can be willing to suffer as you share the good news about Jesus. So I ask you, Christian brother or sister tonight, will you be willing to share in his sufferings? What's your goal? Is it to become more like Jesus Christ? To know more of his power? to share more of his sufferings several years ago there was a northwest tonight news program with an interview with uh, jason robinson and jason robinson was the scorer of england's try in that 2003 rugby world cup final he's a wonderful example of a grace-filled life this man had it all success money fame however the same man Contemplated suicide on more than one occasion. It was another rugby player, uh, a New Zealand all black rugby player, Inga Twigamala, a Christian who witnessed his love of the Saviour to him. Far from the arrogant, boastful attitude of his fellow players, this huge physical specimen of a man would quietly kneel and pray before the start of each game, thanking God. And asking that he would not do anything to dishonour God in his playing. This so impressed Jason Robinson over a period of time. And eventually he became a Christian himself. What he thought was important, he now counts as rubbish. When he was asked this question, what will Jason be doing in the future? His reply was simple and to the point. Living the good life. That's what he said. I don't think he meant winning a lottery ticket. I don't think he meant actually enjoying the trappings of success. You see, for him, for Jason Robinson, came to know what Paul knew as well. His number one goal was to know Jesus more in every possible way so that he'd become increasingly Christ-like. Is that your goal this evening? To know him more? To love him more? To share in his power, and in his sufferings. That was Paul's goal. Is that for you?